Luke 1, 46 through 45. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul uh, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he uh, who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Joe. Well, hello again. It is so good to be with you this weekend. I'm glad that you're here in church. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that very recently our campus pastor, Gabe, uh, departed for a rest and study break, his sabbatical, and he will be away until August first. And so we uh, were kind of texting back and forth this week, nothing work-related, I promise. Uh, I was more encouraging to him to get a good dark tan on their vacation. I'm like, bro, if I've got to be inside working this summer, you got to hit that sun. Uh, So he is away resting. We really were praying for him while he's away that he and Allie will have kind of a rich time of rejuvenation while they're there. And then during these next few months, I will be here each Sunday, uh, Lord willing, and we'll have a few guest speakers uh, along the way kind of in and out. So it should be a fun summer at the downtown campus. Uh, I'm excited for it, and I hope you'll be able uh, to join us. We'd love to share it with you. Now, recently, I was introduced to a brand new book. Uh, It's all over kind of the Amazon bestsellers list, New York Times, this stuff. Now, the book is called Everybody Lies. Uh, Great title. And the subtitle of the text, it kind of clarifies the trajectory of the book. It says, everybody lies, big data, new data, and what the internet can tell us about who we really are. So you see this book, and everybody lies, the author, uh, Seth Stephen Davidwitz, he's this data analyst. And so he pours over kind of this mass aggregation of clicks and search results and kind of all the different... uh, Yeah, things that people do online, and he proves what it's likely that many of us already know. His uh, conclusion is this, that the lives we present to the world and the lives we lead are actually quite different. I just want to give you a few examples uh, from his books. David Witt says that the National Enquirer, so a tabloid that I get from my grandma each Christmas, uh, that publishes (laughs) stories of maybe questionable, it's a tradition, uh, that publishes maybe questionable stories, right? Not kind of the best content. The National Enquirer, it sells three times as many copies as The Atlantic, a magazine that does more kind of long-form journalism, in-depth features, right? So The National Enquirer, it sells way more than The Atlantic. However, The Atlantic is 45 times more likely to be referenced or to appear in a Facebook post. So again, the the lives we present to the world and the lives we lead, they're actually quite different. Uh, Here's another thing the book says. On social media, so on those platforms where we present who we are to others, uh, kind of the phrase, my husband is, when people are finishing that phrase, the most popular things on social media, when that sentence comes up, my husband is, my best friend, 
amazing, the greatest, so cute, right? So this is what happens on social media where we present our lives to others. However, on Google, the search engine <laughs> where no one sees your results, uh, the things that finish that sentence are a little bit different. It says, my husband is mean, a jerk, uh, annoying, right? So again, there's a difference between the lives we present to the world. My husband is so cute, my best friend. Uh, Google, my husband is mean and a jerk, right? The lives we present to the world and the lives we lead are actually quite different. Now, this book, it got me thinking even about my own life. Because uh, if you'd go on my Facebook profile today, try to think, okay, what have I put up there in the past month? So you would see maybe some pictures of a glamorous wedding in Chicago, uh, a link to a great documentary about the LA riots in 1992, um, another link to a 60 Minutes story about why we use our cell phones so much that was fascinating. But what you would not find uh, is the disclosure that probably twice this past month, uh, I've fallen asleep on my couch watching CSI after having had popcorn for dinner, right? But that uh, did not make the cut. Again, the lives we present to the world and the lives we lead, they're quite different. And this phenomenon got me thinking about a poem that I encountered when I was a children's librarian. And it's from one of my favorite authors, Shel Silverstein, and he says this, underneath my outside face, there's a face that no one sees. A little less smiley, a little less sure, but a whole lot more like me. And I think that Silverstein and David Witz, they're making the same point, and the point is this. We've all got an outside face. We've all got a me that we project to others. We've got this impulse within us to present something a little more smiley and a little more sure to those that are watching. But underneath that, our lives are different because the lives we present to the world and the lives that we lead, they're actually quite different. And why is this? Why do we all at some level share this compulsion, this drive to communicate only certain things to others but not other things? Why do we want to shape and craft that which we tell others, uh, emphasizing some details, minimizing others, usually with the goal of making ourselves look better or look good to others? Why, why does that happen? Well, I'd like to suggest this morning that our topic, Vainglory, gives an answer. I mean, if you've been around Christ community recently, you know we've embarked on this new sermon series called Vices and Virtues. It's an eight-week journey designed to help us explore vice, those habits of the heart that ultimately lead to destruction, that ruin relationships and yield hurt, right? So vice and virtue, those habits of the heart and mind that ultimately lead to flourishing, that might take a little more effort and require conscious cultivation, but over time allow us to grow in relationship both with others and with God. And we've said all along in this series that vices and virtues, they're both kind of like muscles. So they grow with use and they atrophy with disuse. And so indeed, you might say that this series, Vice and Virtue, it's been about growing virtue by flexing virtue muscles more and allowing vice to atrophy. That's what we've been going after so that over time we might have new habits and new disciplines that make us more like Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to spend some time discussing the vice of vainglory, which in simpler terms is the desperate desire to look good to others, the desire for the applause and the esteem of those around us. Vainglory, it's a habit of the heart that is so common. Uh, it is everywhere in our culture, and it has very real costs. And so that's where we're going to begin this morning. We're going to start by exploring the costs of vainglory. From there, we'll talk about the freedom of humility, which is the antidote to vainglory. And finally, we're going to name one specific habit, one spiritual discipline that might be helpful to each of us this week as we attempt to eliminate the hold of vainglory on our life 
and instead grow in the virtue of humility. And so if you have a Bible with you this morning, we're going to start in Acts chapter 5. Would you join me there? Acts 5, it is on page, I should have this written down, I think it's 913 of our community Bibles. Yeah, so Acts chapter 5. And just a little background while we're there, Acts is the story of the church in its earliest days. So I'm about kind of the founding days of the church. And so uh, in Acts chapter 5, we encounter Ananias and Sapphira. And they've joined the church when it is white hot, passionate about Jesus. I mean, this is a period in the church where people are actually selling possessions that they have and giving the proceeds that they earn to those in need. So there's good things happening in this church. There's really admirable things happening in this church. But at the same time, those things are costly and hard, right? It's difficult to sell something that you love and give away the proceeds. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they decide they'd like to look good in their community. They decide they'd like to gain some applause and some recognition from those around them, but they're not convinced they actually want to do the hard work that it takes to get there. And so here's their story. It starts in Acts 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So, so far, so good. They've done the right thing. They sold something valuable that they owned. But then verse 2, with his wife's knowledge, he, Ananias, kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And when he did this, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Couldn't you have done anything you wanted to do with it? Why is it then that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. I mean, did you follow what went on here? Ananias and his wife, they did something bold. They did something noble. They sold a piece of property that they had. Right? That's a great first step. But then... Because their primary desire was to look good to others. Because their primary desire was to get a little applause for this good deed that they did. They decided, well, we can still go and make a public spectacle and give our money at the church. However, we're going to keep just a little bit of it back. And when they came before the church, Peter could see right through their farce. And it says that Peter calls them out. And notice why he calls them out. He's not upset that they sold a piece of property. They had every right to do that. And he's not mad that they profited from their sale. Again, verse 4, when he's like, wait, wasn't this in your disposal the whole time? You could have done anything you wanted with it. You both didn't have to sell it. And when you sold it, you both didn't have to bring the money here. But Peter's frustrated and he calls them out because they tried to lie. They tried to put on a show. They wanted everyone to believe that just like others had done, they had sold it and they were bringing all their money to the church, but they hadn't done that. They wanted the applause, but they hadn't taken on the costly task of really embracing the virtue of giving to those in need. Peter calls them on it. They wanted people to believe they'd brought all their money to the poor when they really hadn't. And it was in their desire to look good to others that Ananias and Sapphira became hypocrites, right? People that say one thing that kind of publicly promote one thing, but in actuality live in another way. And this is how vainglory works. It starts in this desperate desire to get approval from others, and then it blossoms into hypocrisy and deceit when we decide that we'd rather willfully present an image to others that we're good instead of doing the hard work that it takes to be good. 
when we decide we want to perform, we want to present again this public persona to others, even though we know that persona is far from honest and far from complete. You see, many times vainglory, it's rooted in insecurity. It's rooted in this fear that we're somehow ultimately unlovable and that the only way we might experience love or experience affirmation from those around us is by presenting a perfect picture of who we are to them. And we're afraid that people will be let down when they discover our weaknesses and failures. And so we try to hide those and sweep those away. And then we just dedicate ourselves to putting on a good show. We say we're going to be all about the performance. We do our best to look like we've got it to others, look like we've got it together to others, like we're excelling at our job, nailing it in every relationship, raising perfect kids, going on the hottest vacations, having the best food, right? And we find ourselves engaged in the constant task of keeping up appearances, preserving the image that we've self-consciously cultivated. I mean, all of this, it takes us to the point where we'll only risk telling the truth to Google because to tell the truth to other people would mean to risk the fact of being found out for who we really are. The fact that people might see the underface, right, instead of what we present to the world. And it's in this way, in this dark, twisted way, that vainglory ultimately erodes our capacity to experience intimacy because it diminishes our ability to accept genuine love and grace from others because we come to believe that our performance is why people like us. We come to believe that the show we've put on is why those closest to us have accepted us or love us. And so we come to believe that this, this image, that's what people approve of, that's what people enjoy. And over time, that erodes our ability to believe that anyone could love us for who we are or extend grace to us when we make a mistake. This is what makes vainglory so costly. I think this is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. I think it's because Jesus knows that when we become concerned about projecting the right image instead of being the right kind of person, we become hypocrites. Then we become isolated, and then we become miserable. I mean, this is how it works. This is how it happens every time. It just takes a little time for this to work out. But the good news this morning is that Jesus came to resolve our vainglory problem. He came so that we might be freed from that nagging pressure to perform or put on a show in an attempt to earn the love and approval of those around us. Because Jesus knows that that way of life is exhausting and empty. And he knows that we are powerless to be as good as we'd like others to think that we are. He knows within us that we're all broken and sinful. And so Jesus, he left heaven and he came to earth, and he died and rose again. And he says to us this morning that you don't have to fake it any longer. You don't have to pretend or put on a show. He, he says that we have the ability now to say, you know what? I'm not all that I should be, and I'm not all that I'd like to be. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. I mean, this is what confession is, church. If you've heard Christian folks talk about confession, Jesus wants us to just simply be able to utter the fact, I am who I am. This is it, the complete story. And he came and died so that even as we're making that confession, as we're owning up to what's on the inside, what's on that underface, that even in the midst of that, he gives us an assurance of his love and his grace on our behalf. He wants us to know that even as we're owning up that our lives are not as they should be, we are accepted before God and that acceptance is sure. And that's because our right standing before God has never come from anything that we've done or anything that we've performed. It comes from something that Jesus has earned for us. 
It's not something we've got for ourselves through our performance. It's something he accomplished through his self-sacrifice. I mean, this is why Paul is able to write in Romans, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace to which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul says we've never found our right standing. We've never found our peace with God by anything that we've done. It's only been through what Jesus has done and that we've accepted by faith. And church, this is good news because it means that because of Christ's death and resurrection, we're now enabled to stand justified before God because he's taken our sin and given us his sinlessness. It's nothing we had to perform, nothing we had to do. There's no masquerade to keep up. It's a gift that we freely received. And because it's a gift, and because it's something Jesus has accomplished on his own, that means that for those who are in Christ, there is nothing to fear, nothing to hide, and nothing to prove. There's nothing to fear, nothing to hide, or nothing to prove. There's nothing to fear because there, there doesn't have to be a fear of being found out. God knows everything anyway. I mean, it's Paul who says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's no secret that you have that God doesn't know about, so there's no need to fear being found out. There's nothing to fear. God died for you even in the midst of your sin. And so any kind of fear of, oh, if someone knows the real me, they could no longer love me. If someone could see behind the show, they'd reject me. No, no, no. In Christ, there's nothing to fear. And on the same coin, there's, there's nothing to hide. If there's nothing we can hide. He sees all. It's, it's much better to just own up and say, God, this is who I am. There's no need to feel like we have to control or hide or keep this part away or don't tell God about that. No, no, no. He sees it all. And he'd rather us bring it in the open and experience grace and change. There's nothing to fear. He's not mad. There's nothing to hide. He can see it all and he loves you anyway. And there's nothing to prove. The performance can stop. The striving can cease. Instead of pretending we are better than we really are, we can extend just recognize that Christ died on our behalf, that I have nothing to prove to anyone. I'm accepted just as I am, that grace comes and meets me wherever I am, and that grace can motivate change, but I don't have to feel like I've got to perform or prove something. No, no, no. There's, there's nothing to prove in Christ. Jesus has said, here, take my righteousness. I give it to you by faith. I mean, this is why Christ's work on the cross makes all the difference to our vainglorious hearts. This is why the gospel is such good news, because Jesus had freed us from the need to constantly perform. He's assured us that God's love is not the result of our behavior, and this way he has set us free from vainglory free from feeling like we have to perform or get applause to find acceptance. Yet, as we've said throughout this series, vices don't just lose their grip on us when we learn something new. Right? Vices lose their grip when we do something differently. We can be reminded of the truth of the gospel today, but we're going to need new disciplines and new habits if vice is going to lose its grip on our life throughout the week. We all know that some level, vainglory is going to pop up this week. We're going to want a like. We're going to want to post something. We're going to want somehow to feel that affirmation machine, right? That desire, that appetite's been cultivated in us. And so what are we to do as we leave this place? What are we to do this next week? What virtue are we to cultivate if vainglory is to lose its grip on our hearts? Well, I think the virtue that we need to flex and train and grow in is the virtue of humility. It's a Humility. If vainglory is the desperate desire to look good in others' eyes, humility is the sincere desire to display the glory of another. And in the New Testament, we find a remarkable example of humility in Mary, Jesus' mother. 
Now, it needs to be said that I'm convinced that in kind of Protestant evangelical circles, we have too often downplayed Mary because we're afraid of what some other folks say about her in different Christian traditions. So we've downplayed Mary. We've said more what we think Mary is not instead of recognizing some of the things she can teach us. And I would say we need to apologize for that. There are lessons we can learn from Mary's life, and I think one of the great lessons is her deep abiding humility. It's what we heard read earlier in Luke 1. See, Mary had been told by an angel that she, an unmarried virgin, would give birth to the Son of God, and she recognizes instantly that she's been invited to play a significant role in all of human history. In the grand story that God is writing, she's got a featured part. But instead of boasting in that position, instead of being kind of proud that she landed a prime role, her her response is amazing. She chooses instead to embrace humility and seeks to display the glory of God. Let's read again what we've heard read in Luke 1. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Do you see what Mary's saying here? She's saying, hey, God took notice of me. I'm so grateful for him. Yes, he's given me a unique role in all of human history, but man, I'm just so thankful. I acknowledge that this is a gift from him. This is nothing I've done, nothing I've kind of worked up and proven. It wasn't because I was really good and then he came along and selected me. No, he he just picked me out of the whole bunch and said, you're going to be that chosen one. Mary says, and you know what? I'm grateful. My soul magnifies the Lord. I'm a humble servant. And then she continues, she said, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. I love this because it shows Mary isn't foolish or naive. She gets that she's got a very special role. She knows now I'm going to have a name that echoes through all of human history. But look what she says next. She says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Even as Mary recognizes she's got this special role, she gives thanks to God. She says, this is something that God has done on my behalf, and he's holy. He's the one who's worthy of the praise. Mary takes the praise that folks might direct at her, and she instead turns it back towards the Lord. Church, that's humility. In humility, it's the virtue that weakens vainglory. It's the posture we must embrace if we want the impulse to perform within us to diminish. And so how precisely does this occur? How exactly do we get after humility? What does that look like in kind of tangible practices? Well, here as our time draws together to a close today, here are a few thoughts. Um, I think that one of the primary pathways to escape vainglory and embrace humility is through secrecy. Secrecy, it's fleeing the spotlight. I mean, listen to these words from Jesus in Matthew 6. Jesus says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Again, these actors who put on a big show. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they might be seen by others. But truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. With a little applause, a little, oh, they must be really good people. That's it, Jesus says. But you, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. And pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. I think this is Jesus talking about the spiritual discipline of secrecy. It's something that the philosopher Dallas Willard has written about. He says that in the discipline of secrecy, we abstain from causing our good deeds and qualities to be known to help us lose or tame the hunger for fame, justification, or the attention of others. You see, secrecy, rightly practiced, it kind of frees us from feeling like we need to be the heads of the PR department of our own lives. 
And it says instead, you know what? I'm going to trust that God will secure my reputation before others. I'm going to trust that he knows what other people need to think of me. And instead, I can afford to live in secret. I can afford to do deeds quietly. I don't have to work for the applause of others. I'm just going to have a secret thing between me and God. Secrecy is at its best. It teaches love and humility for both God and others. And so how might we practice secrecy in this coming week? I think there's another word that starts with an S that'll help us. And I think the easiest way to practice secrecy is through silence. Silence. Silence is abstaining from talking. It means choosing to be quiet even when you've got something to say. Silence. I think this can look like a self-conscious decision not to share that story at work or at brunch about the great way that you came through for a coworker this past week or saw some party you had with your friends this week or how you're just so proud of what you have coming new and next in your life, right? Just silence. I'm going to abstain from talking about something good that I did now. I'm going to practice silence. It can look like a decision not to talk about yourself to others. It can also look like a decision not to talk to yourself about yourself. Because I think so often vainglory can grow in the little narratives we keep in our own minds, right? You look great this morning, Tyler. People are going to love it, right? <laughs> the silence, it grows in these small narratives on the inside. So it can look like choosing to be silent with what we say to others, silent with what we say to ourselves. I mean, here's a few questions. What would it look like this week for you to choose not to post about that good moment that you had with the Lord in prayer? Or not to post about that sweet time you enjoyed with those closest to you? What would that look like? Just a question. And to be clear, I'm not saying that Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or any social media, I'm not saying that it's, that it's inherently bad. There are great ways that it keeps us connected. It, it's, it's just a tool, but a tool needs to be used wisely. And tools shape the user. The more you use a shovel, the stronger certain muscles will get. The more you use social media, you are building certain muscles. And so what would it look like just this week if there's something, you know, I normally would, but I'm going to be silent about this post. Just a question. And why do I think it's important? It's because silence frees us from a broadcast mentality. It frees us from believing that our worth and acceptability is determined by the feedback of others. See, it's easy for us to get caught in that loop, isn't it? Man, I'm feeling down. Man, something good's happened. I should publish that, and then I'll feel affirmation in return. Silence says it doesn't need to be look at this or look at me or look at that. Instead, I can be like, you know what? I'm all right. I'm at peace. It allows us to hear the still, small voice of the Lord. What if this week you kept quiet about something and didn't post about it on social media? Here's another one. What if this week you kept quiet about something good that you did in an effort to free yourself from the need to receive positive feedback? Right? What if maybe you do something good in secret? Maybe you serve a coworker or serve a friend. You send a, I don't know, an anonymous gift to someone in your life. I don't know how you do it, but what if you did something in such a way that someone couldn't tell it was you and couldn't pay you back? That it's some kind of act of kindness, some kind of act of selfless, selflessness where there can be no gain in return. And that's a great way to flex the silence muscle. It's a great way to kind of do something that benefits others without any possibility of any praise coming your way. What if you serve someone silently and secretly that could offer you nothing in return? I mean, why does that matter? Here's what happens. When we embrace that kind of silence, we actually have the opportunity to develop secrets. And these aren't the secrets that are no fun unless they're shared with everyone. These are good secrets because they're secrets that we have with our Heavenly Father. You see, there's nothing quite like having a secret 
having an inside joke, having a little moment that only you and God know about to grow your intimacy with him. And I think we rob ourselves of that opportunity when we tell everyone about everything good that we've ever done. God wants to have close, intimate secrets with you. And in silence, we train ourselves not to rely on the applause or the likes or the encouragement of others, but rather to depend upon the connection and affirmation of our Heavenly Father. In silence, we celebrate the closeness that we have with God. And friends, that is life changing. And I'd say that's what freedom looks like. That's what humility looks like. That's what our lives can look like when we decide we're not just interested in looking good to others, but we're actually interested in knowing and becoming like the one who is truly good, becoming like our heavenly father. So can I end with this encouragement? Friends, we live in a time unique in human history where there are more avenues for people to receive affirmation constantly than ever before. I can't think of a time, and I have a history degree, where people have had more access to posting something and receiving affirmation in return. And hear me clearly, there's some very good benefits about that. This is a blessed time when we live. I wouldn't want to live in any other time. I'm a big fan of air conditioning and Netflix. <laughs> However, because of the time in which we live, we have to be so, so careful about not flexing that vainglory muscle and abusing the gift we have to receive affirmation from others because it's costing us intimacy with our Heavenly Father. And the way that we gain that intimacy back and grow spiritually is by embracing a discipline like silence that says, I don't need others to say I'm worth it or good or accepted. I know that I have that fully in Christ. That's my prayer for all of us this week. So will you join me in that prayer now? Oh, man, Lord, we, uh, we so often, I so often, I so often love applause, Lord. It, it can feel so uh, fulfilling in the moment, God, but it's fleeting. And it's a poor counterfeit for true intimacy with you. And so, Lord, I ask for myself, I ask for all of us, that you would free us from the grip of vainglory, Lord. And then instead, you could cultivate humility in our hearts. Lord, help us to see that, man, we don't have to share everything we ever do. Lord, help us to see that it's good to have some secrets with you. Lord, help us to become the kind of people that don't need to rely on others to boost us up or hold us up or give us affirmation or to put on a performance for their good. But Lord, instead, that we could trust that in our quietest moments, in our most honest places, we don't have to perform. Because you have loved us fully, you know us completely, and you're absolutely crazy for us. Lord, I pray that that truth would sink deep into our hearts this week. And that it would enable us to follow you with more authenticity and more joy. God, we ask for that. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.